In reality television, the people are represented by two separate but equally obsessed attorneys. This is their podcast. Hi, I'm Ceci. And I'm Angela. And this is the Bravo Docket. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Hey everyone, this is Editing Sussy. Before we jump in, I wanted to promote something really cool that we're going to be doing the weekend of BravoCon in Las Vegas. We got a reservation at a local bar there on the Saturday of BravoCon weekend at 6 p.m. So from 6 to 7 p.m., we're going to be at the bar called American Beer, and we will be meeting all of you. We're super excited about it. It's sort of like a mix and mingle and hangout in the middle of all the festivities going on that weekend. We will be co-hosting with Emily D. Baker, who is another pop culture legal mind, and we're really excited about it. So I will be putting a link in the episode description for this episode where you can register to attend. We're really, really excited about this. I'm proud of us for getting it together and uh, actually following through with this. So if you are attending BravoCon or in Las Vegas that day, we can't wait to see you and hang out. But yeah, check out the Eventbrite link in the episode description. We'll also be promoting it on our Instagram. Okay, here's the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Bravo Docket. Today, we're going to talk about everything Tom Girardi and competency and mental health and All of the above, given that his competency proceedings are occurring right now in LA. I had the pleasure of attending one. It was very cool to attend a hearing for something that we've covered for so long. So that was an experience, and I'll talk about that. But yeah, this will be a little technical episode because a lot of it involves neurology, psychology, things that are outside of our wheelhouse, but we'll do our best to summarize. And yeah, we have some interesting comparisons to make. So anything to add? No, but this is going to be a really interesting episode. And all of you that enjoy learning some technical legal things are really going to enjoy this. We talk about the differences between competency to stand trial and the insanity defense, which is always fascinating. And we are going to talk about some other famous cases where these types of claims were used successfully and unsuccessfully, and some other famous people that you may or may not have heard of. Hey, everyone. This is Editing Sessi. We ended up recording over three hours of audio when we sat down and recorded this. 
So, of course, we're going to split it up into multiple episodes, probably just two. This one's going to lay all the groundwork for what competency is, what it means to be in a conservatorship. And then the next one, we'll get into the actual specifics of Tom Girardi and what's going on in his hearings. They're both going to be very interesting, so stick around. I just wanted to forewarn that not everything that we just explained is going to be in this one episode. Also, I recorded this when I had a cold. There's definitely something going around. I don't know if you've been experiencing that. I apologize for the sound of my voice. I don't like listening to people when they're sick. I can only imagine that some of you don't either. I really apologize. We wanted to get some content out for everyone that was new and fresh. So thank you for being so understanding. All right. Great. So we haven't talked about this yet on the podcast, but for those who are not aware, Tom Girardi was indicted in two separate grand jury proceedings. One is a federal criminal trial proceeding in the Federal District of Illinois, and the other is in the Central District of California. And we'll do a little recap on what both of those are. Do you want to start with Illinois? Yes. The one in Illinois is against Tom, Christopher Kamen, who is the Girardi and Keyes CFO, and David Lira, who's the Girardi Keys partner. It was brought on February 1st, 2023. This is the famous one that concerns the families of the victims in the Lion Air plane crash that Tom represented. We covered this previously, but as a refresher, they settled with Boeing for $11 million. The indictment explains that Girardi Keese wasn't supposed to get any attorney's fees because they used a, a litigation lender to fund the proceedings. All of the money that Girardi Keese received from Boeing was supposed to be sent directly to the clients. And then this is from the indictment. It says, it was part of the scheme that Girardi came in and Lira knowingly misappropriated and caused to be misappropriated settlement funds belonging to the client victims by diverting those funds or causing those funds to be diverted from Girardi Keese's account for improper purposes. Those improper purposes included, among other things, paying Girardi Keese's business and operating expenses, funding payroll, paying American Express credit card bills, and funding settlements to other Girardi Keys clients whose own settlement funds previously had been misappropriated by Girardi Keys. We've talked about this a lot before, given that I think these victims have been involved in a lot of litigation against Tom. So nothing really new, but it's, it is new that there are federal criminal charges stemming out of this now. Everybody had been asking for a long time, when are there going to be criminal charges? And they're there now. As of February. Yeah. They've been, yeah. They've been there. <laughs> so then the one in California concerns a different scheme and different plaintiffs. So the one in California is against Tom and Chris Kamen, and it was brought on January 31st, 2023. So before the one in Chicago. And the indictment concerns clients residing in California that Tom represented in different types of cases. So there was a medical device case a boat accident, a gas explosion, and an automobile collision. From the indictment, it says beginning at least as early as in or around 2010 and continuing through at least in or around December 2020, defendants Girardi and Cayman knowingly and with intent to defraud devised, participated in, and executed a scheme to defraud victim clients to whom defendant Girardi and Girardi Keese had agreed to provide legal services. And there are five clients that they list out. They then give a summary of how the scheme worked. Girardi would negotiate a settlement on behalf of a client that would require payment of funds to the client. 
And then Girardi would misrepresent, conceal, and falsely describe to the client the true terms of the settlement and the disposition of the settlement proceeds. And I've talked about this before, but just so you know, so let's say you have something happen to you that is caused by the negligence of someone else, and then you go to a plaintiff's attorney, you will sign a contingency fee agreement, and that's usually 33 and a third percent. And within the contingency fee agreement, nearly all states require that the fee agreement outline exactly how you're going to get the money and how an accounting is going to be done. Typically, when you get one of these checks, when you get a settlement check, if you're a plaintiff's firm or you did plaintiff's work, then you get the check and it either has your name and the client's names on it, so you, everybody has to sign off on it, or it's wired into a trust account, and there has to be an accounting from the trust account explaining exactly what costs and expenses are being deducted, what lawyer's fees are being deducted, and exactly how much the client is going to get. Sessi and I have said it many times. The first thing they tell you your first day of law school is do not commingle funds, do not mess with your trust account, be as careful with that as you can. They go on to say in the pleading that defendants Girardi and Cayman would cause a settlement proceeds to be deposited in or transferred to attorney trust accounts and that the defendants Girardi and Cayman controlled and that they would then embezzle and misappropriate funds from those accounts for improper purposes, including, like we've talked about before, and like Ceci already mentioned, the very famous American Express bills, and then because it was a type of Ponzi scheme, paying back other clients their settlement funds that they didn't get that they'd already misappropriated. So then we've talked about this before, but as part of the scheme, they would send the clients lulling communications, including, among other things, falsely denying that the settlement proceeds had been paid, falsely claiming that Girardi Keys could not pay the proceeds to clients until certain requirements had been met, such as addressing tax obligations and supposedly necessary authorization from judges. So being like, oh, we can't pay the money because the judge said we can't pay the money, even though it was a complete lie. I do recommend watching the Hulu documentary on this because it really shows in detail how some of this scheme worked. And they've got recordings of Girardi talking to victims, leaving them messages saying, hey, man, I'm the good guy here. You know, I'm going to get you your money. It's just judge so-and-so. And it's absolute fabrications. It's abhorrent. And then they would also like give the victims loans because some of the victims didn't have money and they would loan them or they quote unquote say it was a loan, even though it was their settlement funds. It was just disgusting. Or say, oh, I'm going to invest it for you, which, by the way, huge red flag. If you have a plaintiff's attorney that's saying, let me invest the money for you or keep it or do something else with it. Attorneys shouldn't be involved in that. They can't give investment advice. They haven't taken their series seven. That's not what we do. Big red flag. All right. I'm just going to go over one example that they gave for one of the clients, but it says in January 2013, Girardi negotiated a settlement with a lawsuit related to client one's injuries. It was a $53 million settlement for release of all of the client's claims. On January 10, 2013, Girardi told the client that the case had settled but he had not informed client one of the settlement or obtained client one's consent to the terms of the settlement and concealed the true terms of the settlement. So he entered a settlement without getting the client's consent and didn't even tell them what they settled for. 
Girardi falsely represented to the client that the total settlement amount was approximately $7 million and concealed from client one that the true amount of the settlement was actually $53 million. Girardi further falsely represented that the... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Straight up lie. We've had multiple podcast episodes on it, but I want to say this is such a black mark on the legal profession and it's so abhorrent for so many reasons. Before you become a lawyer, you have to go through this intense background check and you can't even have something bad on your credit report no matter how poor you were going through law school and undergrad and you have to take an ethics exam and you have to do all of these things to prove that you're a trustworthy person because of this very reason you have people's potentially life savings and their intimate personal details in your hands and your duty as a lawyer to your client is to protect that at all costs and to always serve the interest of your client, even if it's maybe detrimental to your own interests. What he did is so opposite of what most lawyers do and how seriously most lawyers take ethical requirements. So the indictment is specific to client one goes on to discuss how they would get, like we've talked about, they would get a deposit in for the settlement into the trust account and then would use it to pay other people's settlements. And then they would tell client one, oh, sorry, your funds are locked up for six months because they're in a different interest-bearing account. We can't access them. Or saying, oh, look, we worked magic so far in getting these huge interest rates and getting the first two years tax-free. So they would lie and say that the little bit of money they would give to client one was an interest payment from the funds being in in a high-yielding account. Oh, and then he sent client one, so this same victim that we're talking about, $2.5 million of the settlement funds, but it was actually funds belonging to clients four and five who are also part of this indictment. So it's like, it's wild that they're referring to the whole scheme and two members were affected by his Ponzi scheme are also part of the indictment. It's just wild. If you watch any of the documentaries on on Bernie Madoff, it's shocking how similar it is. It's this older gentlemen that had the trust of everyone in the communities they were working in and everyone thought they were so great and it turned out they were running a Ponzi scheme for decades. Right. So then in both the California federal criminal proceeding and the Illinois federal criminal proceeding, there was a challenge or a request to examine Tom's competency by his defense counsel. They were like, we think he might be incompetent to stand trial. And the court that got to it first was the California court. So the Illinois court said, I'm going to maybe take into consideration what happens in California and So proceedings are kind of slowed down and paused there until the California competency hearing is done. So that's where we're at now. But what is competency? The United States has long recognized that criminal defendants have to be competent to stand trial prior to the proceeding to allow for fairness for the accused and to protect the integrity of the justice system, which is, (laughs) this is going to be frustrating because this whole competency hearing is based on integrity of the justice system, which is something that... Girardi violated incessantly for decades. Oh, but I get into arguments with Avery about this all the time. Like, how how is it fair to give criminal defendants constitutional due process and have fair trials when they are criminals and have done something bad? And it's because if you don't do it for them, then you can't do like it has to be done for everyone. Then it's oh, not I agree. People. Yeah. I agree totally. There's a lot of problems with our justice system, and Ceci and I fully acknowledge that. But the inherent ideals that are there are good. And in the United States, 
we have due process and due process in its idealized form means that the laws must be applied fairly and equally to all people, especially a citizen accused of a crime. And a lot of the criminal procedure elements go into ensuring that the accused has due process. So in order to have due, in order for there to be due process, you have to be able to confront your accuser and understand and participate in your legal defense. So in order to be found competent to stand trial, the court has to find that the following requirements are met. So the defendant does not understand the nature and object of the proceedings against him or her. In order to meet this standard, the defendant cannot even have a minimal understanding of his or her role as a defendant, the role of the judge, the prosecutor, or the defense attorney, the penalties he or she is facing as a result of being charged with a crime or the criminal process. Then the second one, so it has to be one of two. The second one is the defendant is unable to assist in his or her defense in a rational manner. In order to meet this standard, the defendant is unable to do things like discuss with his or her attorney the facts of the case rationally make decisions regarding things like plea offers or whether or not to testify on their own behalf at trial. This is a case that the prosecutors put in one of their motions, and it says mental deficiencies alone do not render an individual incompetent to stand trial. The standard for competency to stand trial is lower than the standard for capacity to commit a crime. Prior to the date of the hearing, the court can order the a psychiatric or psychological examination of the defendant be conducted and that a psychiatric or psychological report be filed with the court pursuant to the provisions of the applicable statute. The hearing itself is conducted according to the procedures that have been set forth in a statute. And we're talking about in federal court right now. States have different rules for this. And we'll talk about that a little bit towards the end of the episode. So these provide the defendant shall be represented by counsel and have the opportunity to testify and to present evidence and to subpoena witnesses on his or her behalf and to confront and cross-examine witnesses who appear at the hearing. A judge is the one who determines whether someone is competent to stand trial at the end of a competency hearing. And if a judge finds the defendant to be competent, the trial progresses as normal. If the defendant is found to be incompetent, then the defendant's criminal trial gets put on hold and they will be suspended while the defendant receives treatment, which focuses on determining if the defendant will ever be able to stand trial. Individuals in California can receive treatment for up to four months. However, the period of treatment can be extended in some cases. The exact amount of time used for treatment can vary on a case-by-case basis. If after that it's found that treatment won't help, the defendant is temporarily committed. This is all just saying if you're found incompetent, there's still a period where you'll receive treatment and then they'll see if you can ever become competent again. I have a feeling if someone with dementia is found incompetent, there is no way treatment is going to find them to be competent in the future. I think this pertains more to temporary psychosis situations, not something like that, like what they're alleging. Just a PSA here from my own experience if you have an elderly friend or relative and they suddenly show signs of dementia, make sure to get them checked for a UTI. For whatever reason, when you get older, when you get a UTI, it causes disturbances in your brain and manifests as dementia. And once you get them treated 
for that UTI or kidney infection, their mental state goes back to normal. I have no idea why that happens to elderly people when they get a UTI, but it does. Yeah, I, so then, yeah, maybe some people with dementia, once they're found incompetent, can go get treatment and get treated for UTI and then be found competent to stand trial again. That's just a PSA. Make sure you have that checked if you're dealing with a relative or friend that's elderly and is suddenly showing signs of dementia and they did not have that before. It's not medical advice, not legal advice, just a personal anecdote. Okay, so the minimum legal standard for competency to stand trial was set by the U.S. Supreme Court in Dusky versus United States. In 1960, the court determined that it is, quote, not enough for the district judge to find that the defendant is oriented to time and place and has some recollection of events, but that the test must be whether he has sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer with a reasonable degree of rational understanding and whether he has a rational as well as factual understanding of the proceedings against him, end quote. And the standard for competency is not beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the criminal standard. It is by a preponderance of the evidence. And this is the same standard used in civil trials. Ceci, what is the preponderance standard? So the burden of proof is met at a 51% chance. So not 50, 51. That's the burden that you have to prove. Courts have explained that the preponderance of the evidence is defined as the greater weight of the evidence. So to tip a scale slightly is the criteria or requirement for preponderance of the evidence. So think of a scale, the little scales of justice, and it's just tipping a little bit more than the other. That is like every closing argument slide uses that image for the jury's benefit. It's like this. Yeah. Yeah. So this is where a criminal case kind of turns into a sort of quasi-civil proceeding when this competency issue is being determined. It's essentially a battle of experts where the experts are educating the court on their credentials, the examination they did, what is baseline normal and what is abnormal, etc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And then there's a common misconception that if an individual is found incompetent, it's the same as being found not guilty. That is not true. If you are found incompetent, there's no trial, no conviction, and no acquittal. It just, it's a nothing. Let's talk about Tom's conservatorship because this is when we first heard that there may be an issue with his competency or where we first heard that he might have dementia or Alzheimer's. And so if you recall, the first legal action he faced was in the Lion Air case out of Illinois. And that's where Tom's co-counsel Edison, we've talked about this so many times, but he raised to the court that he hadn't been paid his portion of attorney's fees from the settlement. And he soon uncovered that the victims were never paid. Tom and his firm were then forced into bankruptcy. Tom's brother filed paperwork saying that he needed to be Tom's temporary conservator of Tom's person and the estate. And in the motion, he claimed that Tom's current condition has sadly deteriorated to the point where he cannot care for himself without assistance. His short-term memory is severely compromised and he's often not oriented as to date, time, or place. He also said Tom can't take care of himself and that Tom's longtime housekeeper, we're going to talk about her again later, is set to quit because Tom cannot pay them any longer. The motion also noted that Tom believes his financial problems are, quote, temporary or expresses disbelief that he does not have access to funds and has to be continually reminded of this fact. A temporary conservatorship is necessary. For the conservatorship, Dr. Nathan Lavid, a Long Beach forensic and clinical psychiatrist, wrote a sworn declaration submitted to the Superior Court of California on March 10th, stating that Tom was medically unfit to attend any court proceedings, quote, for the foreseeable future, according to a capacity declaration he wrote. Dementia impairs his ability to understand the hearing. His emotional distress is directly related to his dementia and is exacerbated by his confusion. So the court granted this request and appointed him as a temporary conservator. Later, says he's going to talk about what a conservatorship is and Robert requested that Tom be in a permanent conservatorship. So a conservatorship is a court case in which the court appoints a responsible adult or organization to act as conservator to manage the daily life and finances of a conservatee who is unable to adequately care for himself due to old age or physical or mental disabilities. The conservator of the state is appointed to supervise the financial affairs of the individual. So they may pay the bills, manage assets, collect the income or public assistant benefits. And then there's a conservator of the person, and this is to supervise the personal affairs of the individual. So things like meeting their basic personal needs, so getting them food, clothing, shelter, and health care. They may also make important medical decisions for the conservatee. And this came up, I mean, we, we all were talking about conservatorships with the Britney Spears conservatorship, like that was a huge deal. And at first, she had a conservatorship on both her person and her estate, and then it was just her estate, and now she doesn't have one at all. But that just gives the distinction between the two. So there's person and estate, and Tom's brother applied to be the conservator and was granted temporary and then eventually permanent 
of both his person and estate. Do you want to talk about the difference between a temporary and permanent conservatorship? Yeah, a temporary or emergency conservatorship generally lasts for 30 to 60 days, and it grants a responsible adult the authority to exercise temporary control over a vulnerable person's finances and healthcare decisions in order to protect the individual from potential harm to themselves or others. For example, let's say you have an elderly relative that has a UTI and has dementia and is on the phone with a scammer that was trained by Jen Shaw and is trying to give away their life savings for whatever business fake opportunity there is. You could get an emergency temporary conservatorship to ensure that they're not uh, losing their life savings, for example, to a scam. A permanent conservatorship provides for the conservator to control the conservatee's person and or estate, depending on the type of conservatorship indefinitely. Permanent conservatorships are generally granted for conservatees with serious cognitive disabilities that are not expected to improve. And while there are ways to get out of a permanent conservatorship, they are very hard to contest. So then there were additional proceedings that involved motions from both sides and testimony and evidence presented. The State Bar of California filed its own motion against the conservatorship, which we will discuss what their arguments were. But on June 9th, 2022, the court placed Tom in a permanent conservatorship after a hearing and after considering the evidence submitted to him. When asked by the judge at the hearing whether Tom disagreed with the request by his lawyer to make the temporary conservatorship permanent, Tom, according to reports, appeared to stammer and mumble his response. And he said, obviously, I have a disagreement with conservatorship altogether. I want to do everything we can to dissolve it as soon as possible. When asked to clarify whether he objected to making the temporary conservatorship permanent, Girardi told the judge, not at this time. I think we should put together reasons why the conservatorship should be dissolved, and then we'll address the court. But right now, I have nothing to say to the court. So the court here considered the conservatee's medical history and other evidence. They'll hear testimony from family members, friends, and physicians, and then they'll make the decision. So even if a conservatee doesn't want to be in one, their opinion really doesn't have any say into whether or not they'll be placed into a conservatorship. So Tom is now in a conservatorship and has been since June 2022. Let's talk about his competency. In a federal criminal proceeding, either side can actually ask for a determination of competency if the U.S. attorney thinks that the defendant isn't competent to stand trial and that it would be a violation of their due process. They can make the motion. The court can do it sua sponte if the court sees something. But typically, it would be more likely than not the defendant asking for it. And that's what happened here. The defendant, Girardi, filed an application for determination of competency, requesting that the court order an examination. So then February 6, 2023, it was Judge Stevenson. So it's been since transferred to a different judge. But Originally, Judge Stevenson found reasonable cause to believe that Tom might be presently suffering from a mental disease or defect, rendering him mentally incompetent, and he ordered the parties to meet and confer regarding the examination. So he was like, this is happening. We're going to see if he's incompetent. And there was subsequent briefing that was ordered concerning Tom's competency. And then the parties meet and conferred or met and conferred for a few months, but they couldn't agree on some of the parameters for how his examination should be conducted. So Tom's counsel filed a motion to get the judge involved and to resolve it. Tom's counsel filed a motion. It was brief. It just said basically what I said, that they had been conferring with prosecutors on the parameters for the competency evaluation for months 
but they couldn't agree on two specific things. Let me read what those two specific things are so you know what it is going into it. So the two things that they couldn't agree on for the scope of his mental evaluation was whether the evaluator may administer personality tests and whether time limits may be imposed on the examination. And I think the, well, I know Tom's defense's argument was the personality test is very long. I think it's 567 questions. They claim that they, the government couldn't provide any supporting evidence that the personality test tested what they said they were going to test and that the time of it was very long and that long hours of testing would have a significant impact on the health of any person, let alone an 83-year-old living in assisted living. So I don't think that they were saying it shouldn't happen at all or that it couldn't be done spanning a few days, but they were saying just not having parameters at all is a little bit concerning for someone who's 83 and potentially suffering from dementia. So they wanted just time limits that the government's expert could stick to in her evaluation. So like five hours a day instead of 12, because without the parameters, it was just up to her, her own decision how long she could examine Tom for. Do you want to talk about what the government argued? The government really wanted the personality test, and they argued that the administration of comprehensive, reliable, standardized personality tests are a regular part of clinical and forensic competency evaluations. Failure to assess personality traits falls short of normal and ethical practice because, among other reasons, changes in personality can be the very first sign of certain neurodegenerative disorders such as those alleged here. And they say that such changes frequently co-occur with cognitive decline and behavioral changes. Thus, it follows that a medical professional would want to include this critical testing in their overall competency evaluation. An assessment of the emotional and behavioral functioning and factors impacting that functioning are an integral part of any neuropsychological examination, including competency evaluations and are useful, reliable, and regularly administrated forensic and clinical instruments in that regard. One of the particular things that is important for personality testing is establishing the existence of a mental illness or evaluating malingering. Malingering is a fancy lawyer word for pretending to be injured or pretending to have some sort of mental issue. And the government argues that the real reason that Girardi is objecting to the use of personality testing may be the test internal validity measures, which they state is the test ability to identify malingering. But the government argues that these validity measures are precisely why this court should allow the doctor to administer personality testing. And they argue that, as alleged in the indictment, Girardi was continuing to lull several clients well into 2020 by falsely claiming, among other things, that he was working to mitigate the client's tax liability, waiting on a signature from the court or some other false excuse when the defendant, Girardi, knew that Girardi Keys had long ago received these client settlements and spent the money. And then here's where they bring up the state bar filing. In the government's motion, they attached a motion written by the California State Bar as an exhibit. And it contains the really convenient timeline for Girardi starting to suffer from dementia. It states that although the petition alleges that Girardi suffers from dementia and is unable to care for himself as recently as November 2020, two months before the petition was filed, Girardi was holding himself out as 
as a legal expert and moderated a legal education panel discussion with leading trial attorneys and presented on complex litigation strategy. These facts, as detailed in the Declaration of State Bar Interim Chief Trial Counsel, belie allegations that Girardi is now incapable of caring for himself, such that a conservator must be appointed. And it says, shortly before this conservatorship petition was filed, Girardi continued to make prominent public appearances at which he spoke at length on complex legal matters. On October 6, 2020, Girardi gave a one-hour interview regarding trial strategy, during which he spoke in detail regarding several trials he had litigated. On November 21, 2020, Girardi moderated a 1.5-hour-long MCLE, which is Continuing Legal Education, panel discussion sponsored by the Consumer Attorneys of California, during which Girardi delivered advice regarding how to conduct a jury trial and engaged conversantly with four other attorney panelists. Despite these recent examples of Girardi's ready ability to engage in discussions of complex legal issues, the instant petition claiming that Girardi is unable to care for himself and manage his financial resources was filed only after Girardi's legal troubles began to mount. Here's the timeline. On December 10th, 2020, the California Bar sent a letter to Girardi informing him that he was under investigation and requesting a response. Then on December 14th, the United States District Court entered a $2 million judgment against Girardi and ordered his assets frozen. Then on December 15th, 2020, Los Angeles County Superior Court judge issued an order to show cause why Girardi should not be reported to the California State Bar for misconduct in violation of the rules of professional conduct. And on January 4th, 2021, the judge stated that she would report Girardi to the State Bar. Then on January 15, 2021, the State Bar sent a letter to Girardi informing him that it had received and complied with an investigation request by the United States Bankruptcy Trustee for Girardi's client trust account records. Then just days later, on January 19th, 2021, Girardi's petition for conservatorship was filed. I can, I mean, you understand where they're coming from citing that timeline because he didn't claim to be incompetent until after he was in trouble with everyone. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to get to my thoughts on this when I talk about the uh, his expert's testimony. But do you think anyone, like, why would he seek treatment for it if he was living large on money, you know? Yes, there's two theories in my head. So either Girardi is faking this, similar to a famous mobster we're going to talk about, and also a Sopranos storyline that was based off of the real-life famous mobster, or he had been incompetent for a long time, and his CFO, Cameron, his partners, and the other people in his life had been taking advantage and basically using him as a puppet to continue to get cases. Not that he wasn't doing it already. They just continued the scheme that he had already started, but that scheme had been working. And so they kept him in place as a figurehead to keep getting these big cases. So those are my two theories. Yeah. There are others that I'm happy to talk about when we get to the expert, but I, yeah. Yeah. I think like, it's just, you see things more when you have a spotlight on them. Yeah. I mean, I can I can see that. I mean, yeah. So the government brings this up again, and they pointed out, and I think this is written well, but it says, Defendant Girardi has been charged with five counts of wire fraud stemming from his decades-long misappropriation of client funds through his now-defunct law firm, Girardi Keese. The indictment alleges that for years, until his firm was 
forced into involuntary bankruptcy in early 2021, defendant and others at Girardi Keys were operating a Ponzi scheme, paying old clients with new clients' money, and were lying to clients in order to cover up the misappropriation of tens of millions of dollars in client settlement funds. Then mere weeks after allegations of Girardi's fraud were made public, that's when he claimed that he should have a conservatorship. So what says he's saying could absolutely be true. I mean, he got a spotlight shined on him, and then suddenly it's like, oh, wait, we have to admit that he's incompetent now. I mean, I'll just point out that the government put a lot of their argument as to why he shouldn't be found competent in this motion. But this motion was just about two issues or the parameters of how to do the evaluation. So his defense counsel didn't have a long response in response. But we're going to get to that. There's more where they get into the evidence and the arguments and discussion. But yeah, the government just kind of used this opportunity to throw in everything about the timeline and everything. But it's like the judge had already ordered the competency evaluation to occur it was just like, how are we going to do it? Yeah. <laughs> so that's why, I I like- ha- that's why I'm not getting into what the defense said in response because they, did, they didn't respond to this yet. But I do have responses <laughs> to this when we get to it. I like what the government's doing here, saying, all right, you filed this motion. This gives us a chance to go ahead mm-hmm. and educate this judge and the clerks on our version of the timeline. And they took advantage of that. And Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. You should always take advantage of it. But yeah. Just, yeah, I don't want to like start talking about it when it's not up yet, but that's not my fault. That's just because they didn't put it in this motion. So the court ordered the competency evaluation. The court ordered that each party will retain their own expert and conduct a psychiatric or psychological examination. And then they said it will proceed as follows. So the government's expert shall coordinate with Mr. Girardi's conservator to schedule the examination Robert Girardi, through coordination with the administrator of the elder care facility, defense counsel, and the government's expert, will ensure that the facility has a suitable private space to conduct the examination. They state that the examination can take place virtually or in person. Importantly, the court states that the agreement to the evaluation by the government expert does not constitute a waiver of Girardi's Fifth Amendment privilege as to the alleged offenses, and that the government's expert will not opine on whether Girardi had the requisite mens rea for criminal culpability. Yeah. So basically that's saying that any statement he gives to the experts isn't him testifying as to whether or not he committed the crime. It's just for purposes of his mental evaluation. Yeah. Yeah. So Ceci's absolutely right. No statement made by a defendant in the course of any examination, no testimony by the expert based on the statement, and no other fruits of the statement may be admitted into evidence against the defendant, which here is Girardi, in any criminal proceeding. Yeah, I don't think it would be fair then otherwise. Yeah, no. So then the defense can also do their own psychiatric or psychological examination on him to determine his competency. And then at the end of the examinations, the experts are supposed to write their expert reports, which they did. And the report has to include the defendant's history and present symptoms, a description of the psychiatric, psychological, and medical tests that were employed, and their results, the respective findings, the opinions as to diagnosis, whether the defendant is suffering from a mental disease or defect rendering him mentally incompetent, to the extent that he is unable to understand the nature and consequences of the proceedings against him or to assist properly in his defense. And then the judge also entered a protective order, so anything divulging his health information was ordered to be sealed or redacted in the filings. And then any discovery that defense counsel shared with the prosecutors, there were certain specific parameters that the judge put in place 
as to how they were to handle those medical records. So it was things like they can't make copies of any of his medical records and have them laying around. So it's very strict protocol on how to handle discovery of his medical records. Okay, so this is where we're going to end this episode. The next episode will pick up where we just left off. We'll get into what the government argues after the experts do their evaluations. And then we'll get into what Tom Girardi's defense counsel argues about the evaluations that their experts did. That's really where the meat of their arguments are. I also talk about my experience going to one of the hearings in this competency proceeding. I think you can tell that Angela is sort of taking the side of the government in this case, and I'm sort of taking the side of Tom Girardi, which I know is an unpopular side to take. But of course, I'm swayed because I saw him in person and I listened to some of his experts' testimony in real time and live. So we'll discuss our thoughts on everything going on more freely and openly in the next episode. As a reminder, like I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, we will be doing a meetup Saturday, November 4th at 6 p.m. There's details in the episode description below and also on our social media. Also, if you haven't joined us on Patreon, come on over to Patreon. The top tier gets to join us in a live Zoom every single month. Right now, they've been very intimate, which is awesome. We talk everything Bravo, everything pop culture, everything legal news. We even just gossip. It's a lot of fun. So if you want to chat with us about everything going on, join us on Patreon. There's also a lot of lawsuits going on that we can't cover in a long-form podcast episode, and we post discussions on our Patreon about those lawsuits. Most recently, we posted about the lawsuit between Cameron Westcott's father-in-law against Katy Perry. We gave a summary of that and answered some questions. So yeah, when there are breaking legal news issues, I know you guys come to us for on-demand summaries and we can't always do them, but we do aim to do them on our Patreon informal discussions. That info is also in our episode description. All right. Thank you, as always, for listening. And until next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Bravo Docket is part of the ACAST Creator Network.